Mark 5:21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we're glad to be here this morning. God, it is a joy to be in the house of the Lord. And God, we thank you that through faith in Jesus, we can know that all of our sins are forgiven. We can know that all of your intentions toward us are, are only good. We can know that you are a father and a very, very good father toward us. And God, there are so many other wonderful truths that we come to know as we enter into a relationship with you through faith in your son, Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, as we continue to study the life and the ministry of Christ in the Gospel of Mark, God, would you continue to reveal more and more of your goodness toward us? God, today, would you, even as you did for these two main characters 2,000 years ago, would you increase our faith, grow our faith, help us to trust you more and more and more, to be and to do all that you promise. So God, minister to us through your holy word this morning. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. Please be seated. Well, in our text this morning, we are introduced to two different people in very similar circumstances. Sure, on the surface, it doesn't seem like that's the case. I mean, one of the main characters we're introduced to is a woman who has no family to speak of, and the other main character is a man and a loving father of a very sick child. But, but here's their similarity, and here's what draws these two stories together in Mark's storytelling. Both Jairus and this woman with a flow of blood, are completely desperate. Now, I don't mean desperate in the way that we sometimes use that word to talk about a young girl or a young boy who's looking for love. We say, oh, he's so desperate. You know, what we mean by that, of course, is, well, they're always putting themselves out there. They're starved for attention or something like that. That's not what I mean when I say desperate here this morning. What we're talking about here with these two individuals that meet Jesus on this day is people who are facing circumstances in their lives that are beyond their capacity to handle. You probably saw that. These circumstances that they are facing are beyond their capacity to handle. They do not have the resources in and of themselves to meet the need in their lives. And so desperation has set in. In a room this size, it wouldn't be unlikely that some here today are feeling this way right now. That there are circumstances in your life that have brought you into a place of desperation. Where you're looking at your life and you're saying, I can't handle this on my own. There's nothing more that I can do. You're at your wit's end. Could be disease or illness. Or the threat of it as you're awaiting test results. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your, your kids. Maybe it's your singleness. Maybe it's your finances. The list could go on. But again, the point is that you have come to a place because of the circumstances of your life right now where you don't know where else to turn or what else to do. And you are becoming increasingly desperate. Friends, this message is for you because you are where the two main characters in our text today found themselves. Now, our, our passage here, it begins with a boat ride, as a lot of these passages are beginning at this point in Jesus's ministry. Jesus has just returned back to kind of the land of Israel proper from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. In the passage before this, Jesus went to the eastern side of Galilee to a Gentile region called the Decapolis because he cared about a couple of guys who were demon-possessed. And Jesus supernaturally drives the demons out of these guys and he heals them and the townspeople are freaked out by this and they actually ask Jesus to leave. And Jesus does. If Jesus is unwelcome in your life, you won't find him there. So Jesus leaves there and he comes back now to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And this is, again, Jewish territory now. He's firmly fixed in the towns and the cities of Israel. And when he gets off the boat, the same crowds that were sad to see him go are glad to receive him back. 
And it's an enthusiastic crowd, and it's a large crowd, and the people are swarming everywhere. And yet, the story doesn't really focus too much on the crowds, because immediately we're told that there was a man who came out of the crowd and met Jesus. And this is an influential man named Jairus. He's the first of the two main characters. Jairus, once he sees Jesus, he gets through the crowd and he dramatically falls at the feet of our Lord and he's begging Jesus to come and do something for him. Jesus, will you come to my house and touch my daughter, lay your hands on her that she might recover because guess what? His only daughter is literally on her deathbed. Evidently, there's no more use for doctors or medicine. We're past that point. She's on hospice care. She's about to die. And this man comes and he's begging Jesus, please just come to my house. I believe if you touch her, she can be made well. Now the significance of this scene might be lost on you and me. And so so we need to sort of paint the picture a little bit here. This man Jairus, we're told, is a ruler of the synagogue. Some translations will say the president of the synagogue. The synagogue being the place where the Jewish people gathered for corporate worship. Just like we're here at this church worshiping the Lord, they would go to synagogue. Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue, presumably here in this city. Nevertheless, we learn that this man is a spiritual leader in his community. People looked up to him. People respected him. And and yet we find this ruler of the synagogue falling at the feet of this young, by the world standards, uneducated, poor preacher, and he is begging him to come and heal his daughter. It makes you wonder, what are the people thinking in this giant crowd? I mean, these are small communities. Everybody knows everybody. These people likely almost all knew who Jairus was, and they see Jairus falling on his face in front of Jesus. So put yourself in their sandals for a moment. Here's a man. That was a great joke, right? At least to two of you. Like literally two laughs. Why do I even try? So here's a man who oversees your synagogue. He's the guy who runs your worship services. He's the guy who does some of the teaching from God's word to you. He's the guy who's supposed to have it all together spiritually. He's one of the guys that everybody else runs to when they've got problems. When the bottom falls out in their life, they go to Jairus and other people like him. And it's that guy in front of the entire community that knows him and respects him who humbles himself. He falls down at the feet of Jesus, begging him for help. Many people probably felt a little shocked, maybe a little confused. What's going on here? Who's this Jesus? Why is Jairus acting like this? But people would have been shocked. They would have been confused. They might have mumbled things to their spouse or their friend next to them. Oh, can you believe this? What's going on? But guess what? Jairus doesn't care about that. Jairus is past the point of trying to maintain his own image and save face. He's past the point of worrying about what other people think about him. He's past the point of pretending like he's got everything under control. Why? Because this man had run out of options. He's just a desperate father whose daughter is about to die. Maybe, just maybe, you can already see glimpses 
of God's good, good purposes in allowing real hardship and real difficulty to come into your life and into my life. When God allows that to happen in your life, this is what happens. It breaks our pride and our illusions of autonomy, our illusions that we're actually in control of things, it just shatters all of that and it humbles us. It makes us recognize, I can't fix this myself. And that's Jairus. And Jesus is not turned off by this man's weakness. See, we often think that other people want us to be so strong. That they're going to somehow be turned off if we show any vulnerability and weakness. And you know what? Maybe a lot of us think that because that's how we've been received by a lot of people. You're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to have it together. And when you don't, well, you're just needy or you're bothersome or you're annoying or you're no help to me. I need strong people on my team. But I love that the heart of our Lord is here comes a man who just throws caution to the wind, falls on his face and is just crying to Jesus for help. And our Lord's heart is moved with compassion. Jesus has enough strength of his own. He doesn't need it from me. He doesn't need your strength. He's perfectly strong. So our Lord, seeing this man's need, coupled with this man's faith, agrees, yeah, I'll go with you back to your house. And so they start going. But we read here, Jesus is not the only person to go with Jairus back to Jairus' house. The entire multitude of people go as well. Verse 24 tells us that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So the interaction happens. Jairus falls down before our Lord. They have the interaction and Jesus says, I'm going to come with you to your house. And the crowds are like, if that's where Jesus is going, we're following too. And everybody has got their hands on him. They just can't get enough of Jesus. It's like when you and I see a celebrity walking out of a building. Maybe you see this on social media or on TV and they try to leave somewhere. And there's just crowds of people that keep pressing in closer and closer for a picture or for an autograph, or for a word they want to say to this celebrity. And if it weren't for the security, that celebrity would probably be crushed or be in danger because of the crowd. This was Jesus' situation as he heads over to Jairus' house. It's chaotic. It's a scene. But as we've already read, Jairus is not the only desperate person in Galilee on this day. Verse 25 introduces us to this poor woman who has an incurable illness. The scripture tells us that she had had a discharge of blood, not for 12 days, not for 12 weeks, not for 12 months, but for 12 consecutive years of her life. Now, we don't know exactly what condition this woman had that was causing this chronic bleeding in her body. But there was almost certainly physical pain and discomfort that she was dealing with. But of course, that might very well have been the least of her pain and her discomfort. According to the Old Testament law, this woman with a discharge of blood was what's called ceremonially unclean. And this meant that she was unwelcome to be around other people. She was unwelcome to join the people of God when they would come and gather at the synagogue and worship the Lord or when they would go to the temple. She couldn't do these things. She had to keep away from everybody else. Here's what the law says in Leviticus 15. 
Starting in verse 19, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Notice, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. So notice how the uncleanness continues to spread. Verse 25, here's the key for today's text. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every single day, For 12 consecutive years, this woman was ostracized from her community. This woman was viewed as radioactive. I can't be around her. If I touch her or I sit on something she sat on or we have any contact, I'm unclean. Now I'm an inconvenience. I've got to go through ceremonial washings and different things before I can be acceptable in the community again. And so you can see how easily this woman would have become a social and a spiritual and even a religious outcast in Galilee. Nobody wanted to be around her. They themselves couldn't risk being made unclean. So she had been cut off from everything and everyone. And maybe the worst part of all of it is that rather than seeing some sort of progress in her diagnosis over 12 years, the scriptures tell us things didn't get better. They actually were getting worse. The situation went from bad to worse. Notice in verse 26, it says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So she's more sick than she's ever been, and now she's broke. She spent everything she has. This woman's situation has gone from bad to worse, and like Jairus, she is completely desperate. She had run out of options, out of time and out of resources, and she has nowhere she can turn. That is, until she hears about this man named Jesus. Notice in verse 27, it tells us that this woman had heard the reports about Jesus. She had never seen Jesus. She she wasn't able to. She couldn't go by the seashore and stand in these crowds of people and listen to Jesus preach. She couldn't enter into the home where Jesus healed the paralytic that was dropped through the roof when he was having Bible study in Capernaum. She's not welcome in any of those places, so she's never seen the Lord. But word got back to her. She hears the story, she hears the reports, and you know what? She believes them. And she says, you know what? The doctors couldn't help me. 
Nobody else can offer me any solution, but there is a man here in my community right now that I think, I believe, could actually help me. And so what does she do? Well, just like Jairus, she throws caution to the wind and she comes into the crowds of people to Jesus. And I think verse 27 and the fact that this woman heard these reports that compelled her to believe puts a real premium on sharing reports about Jesus and his power in our lives with the people that you and I know and come in contact with. See, we, we often don't know what other people are going through. Even people we know well, we think we know what's going on, but let's face it, you guys, we all put our, our, our smiles on. We, we all try to have a stiff upper lip. Social media is horrible. You're never going to learn anything about anybody's real condition there. Right? We're just putting faces on. We do that all the time. And it's, it's sort of natural in a defense mechanism. So I'm not totally knocking it. I'm just making the point we really don't know all that much about all that many people. And so lots of the people that you think have it all together, lots of the people that you think are not in desperate situations or have no interest in God might actually have the bottom falling out in their life right now. I mean, you might be going to class every single day sitting next to a, a person who is in a season of desperation. It's a crisis moment in their life. You might work next to that person. You might live next to that person. And and what I love here in this text is that here's this woman who is so desperate and hopeless in the world and somebody tells her about what Jesus can do. And she's ready. It's like a fish when the lure comes by. She's prepped for this. And she just bites onto that good news and she rushes to Jesus. And there are people around us that, again, their lives are in utter desperation. They're not sleeping at night. They're wondering how they're going to get through. They don't know where to turn. And you talking about Jesus to that person might be that thing that instills hope in that person's heart. They might be ready to come to Jesus in a moment. The big idea from the text that we can't miss this morning is this. This is too important for us to overlook. For both Jairus and this unnamed woman in Mark chapter 5, it was their desperation that drove them to Jesus. In other words, I think this is the title of my sermon, my final title I landed on. We'll check in a moment. In other words, desperation develops dependence. Desperation develops dependence. I did get it right. Isn't that the case? Isn't that true? That it is desperation that develops dependence. Here's what I mean. It's not when everything's going right in your life, when everything's perfect in your life, that most people draw near to God. Your health is great. Got a 4.0. All your friends love you. Money's in the bank. Your kids are perfect little angels. Your husband is a holy hunk. (laughs) No, right? Those are the times when it's far too easy for us to forget about God 
All the husbands are like, is that how you would describe me, honey? And all those godly Proverbs 31 women are like, absolutely, 100%, honey. See, when everything's going great in our lives, again, for most of us, we're tempted to just forget about God, to focus on other things, to, again, maybe even start falling into this illusion that we're somehow in control, that we're somehow able to, to keep this good thing moving on in our lives. The sage in Proverbs chapter 30 alludes to this when he pleads with the Lord, listen, to not make him rich. Probably the least popular prayer in the Bible. Oh no, God, don't make me rich. I'd hate that. Right? We probably haven't prayed a prayer like that, but he does. But here's the reason why. This is Proverbs 30 verse 9. He's saying, God, don't make me rich, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? See, he gets it. The author of Proverbs 30 is saying, I, I know my own heart. I know what happens. If I've got everything taken care of and there's just money in the bank and everything's prospering and flourishing in my life, I can start to get a little bit proud. I can start to think that I'm somehow responsible for this. And maybe even become a little bit like the Pharisee with the tax collector in the temple and start looking down on other people and saying, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that guy who doesn't know how to invest money the way I do or take care of his health, and they're over there with these bad health problems. And we can become really arrogant and self-deceived and think that we're responsible for the good things. See, we often don't become dependent on God when everything's going great. But, and many of you can attest to this, when the bottom falls out, that's when you depend on God like never before. That's what Jairus found out. That's what this woman found out. And so I think this point applies to two different groups of people here this morning, and we're going to flesh this out together. Here's group one. Group one are those of us in this room that I was speaking to in the introduction. Group one is the person who right now is looking at your life, and tears are almost welling up in your eyes because you're saying, how does this happen? I came to church today, and the Holy Spirit is talking about me. This is my life. My life is falling apart. Things are in desperation. I don't know what to do. Again, maybe your health is in jeopardy. Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Maybe your children that you've poured into for years and years and years have decided to go off and live a crazy life. Maybe for the third consecutive month, you're realizing there's more month than there is money and I don't know what to do. I'm just amassing credit card debt and you're feeling stressed out about it. And Friend, if you're in that group, the circumstances that you're going through are meant to help you see how much you need God. Or to put it differently, they're meant to help us develop more and more dependence on him. To get to a point when we don't just give lip service to John 15, 5, where Jesus says, listen, he says this to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I read that often and go, oh yeah, okay, I guess that makes sense. But when you really can't fix it yourself, you start to realize if the Lord doesn't come through right now, I, there's nothing I can do. I'm in over my head. I'm beyond my capacity. And so these circumstances are meant to help us see how much we need him. 
Think about it this way. Had God allowed the physicians to heal this woman or to heal the little girl, neither Jairus nor the woman with the flow of blood would have ever met Jesus. They would have never come to him. Right? It was their point of desperation that brought them to Jesus. So God allowed their situations to become this desperate in order that they might experience the Lord. See, when things fall apart in our lives, there is a strong temptation to run away from God. Right? The enemy comes in and he loves to take advantage of of the trials of our lives and say, See, I told you God's not good. See, I told you God doesn't love you. Sure, he loves your other friends at Westmont. Sure, he loves your brother-in-law who's a pastor and their family's so blessed, but not us. God forgot about us. And he comes in and he wants to question the goodness of God and get you to question the goodness of God. And so a lot of people, when the bottom falls out in their life, they go, well, see, God, God isn't for me. God doesn't love me. And if this is what it looks like to have a relationship with God, I don't want anything to do with them. They turn and they walk away. And friend, I hope you can see this morning that desperate times are not evidence that God is pushing you away, but rather that God is trying to draw you near to him. So tuck this truth deep in your heart today. Sometimes God allows your situation to go from bad to worse Not to destroy you, but to develop you. That's what's going on. Okay, God God is not out to destroy you. He's saying, I want to bring you in closer. I want to stretch your faith more. I want to develop that dependence on me. See, Jairus' faith is ultimately getting stretched and it's growing when he sees not his daughter being healed, but instead being resurrected. Okay, that has a much more profound and and formational impact on Jairus, seeing a daughter who's dead come back to life rather than sick be made well. But in order for him to experience that additional stretching of his faith, things had to go from bad, which they are where we're at in the story right now, to actually worse. She's on her deathbed. No, 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 it's worse. She actually has to die. And so again, in our lives, God allows things to become this desperate, to go from bad to worse sometimes, not to destroy us, but to develop us. So if you're in group one, and the enemy's coming, and he's saying, see, God's not good, or God doesn't love you, you just need to say that's not true. It's not true, and I'm going to hang on, and I'm going to keep trusting, and I'm going to keep asking and seeking and knocking, and just leave the results to the Lord. And I know one way or another, whether in this life or the next, he'll sort it out for my good. That's it. And I'm going to live there. Okay, group number two. Some in this room, hopefully most of us in this room, are not right now in this point of utter desperation in our lives. The lesson for you is don't wait to get there. The thing that God's after is he's after dependence. He wants to develop a greater sense of dependence in the life of His children, that's what he's aiming at. And so the key for all of us is, let me just learn now. Let me learn as early on in my life to grow in dependence. Let me learn to rely on him early on in the process. Unfortunately, many of us are all too often like this woman. We'll exhaust all other options before we go to God. 
We live in the most independent culture in the history of humanity. We're the type of people who think to ourselves, we don't need God. We have medical technology. We can fix this. Got a bad heart? We can give you a new one. We don't need God. Our economy is the best in the world. We don't need God. Our military is the strongest in history. We don't need God. We can fix this ourselves. That's ingrained in our identity, especially as Americans. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if this woman had come to the Lord at the three-year mark or the six-year mark or the nine-year mark. Would she still be suffering at the 12-year mark? Of course, we don't know for sure. God has purposes sometimes, and even when we are being dependent and not giving us instantaneously the things that we're asking for. So we don't know for certain, but it's certainly possible that she wouldn't still be in this situation at year 12. James 4.2 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. And God wants us to be an asking people, to keep asking and seeking and knocking. And oftentimes he delights in blessing us with affirmative answers. So the wise person, the more mature believer, will take everything to Christ in prayer, great or small, and they'll take it to him as a first option rather than as their last resort. Now, I've shared this illustration before, but it just makes this point well, so I want to share it again this morning. I can remember as a young adult, probably in college at the time, uh, I was probably in high school, it was Christmas time and we were setting up the Christmas decorations. And we had the tree set up in the living room and we pulled all the lights out and we had all the ornaments out and we were going to start hanging everything when somebody plugged in a strand of Christmas lights just to make sure they worked. They didn't. So somebody said, okay, go get dad. He needs to figure this out. So we go get my dad. He comes in. He sees that the Christmas lights aren't working. And he says to his whole family, he says, guys, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us figure this out. And he literally just stops what he's doing. We all pray. And I remember his prayer. He said something like this. God, I don't want to waste all afternoon trying to troubleshoot what's wrong with these lights. And I don't want to go buy new lights. Would you just help me to figure out what's wrong with this? In Jesus' name, amen. It was very simple like that. And sure enough, we get done praying and within like two minutes, he figures out what's wrong and fixes the lights and we go on. Now, the craziest part about the whole story that I haven't told you yet is my dad's an electrician. Like, not just an electrician, he was an electrical contractor. So my dad could walk into this church, for example, and he would know all the ins and outs of everything going on inside of our walls. And if a light goes out or something's not working, a projector light's not working, he'd understand at the technical level, what the problem is. And here's a guy who's an expert in electricity and he's looking at something as silly as a single strand of Christmas lights, which has almost, you know, there's very few things that could be going wrong there. And he just says, I don't want to waste extra time. I just want to take this to the Lord in prayer and have the Lord help me. And he brings it to the Lord in prayer. And sure enough, the Lord answered that prayer. And friends, that's the sort of dependence that God wants us to begin to live with. Like even an electrician saying, well, I'm just not so self-assured of my own skills that I'm going to assume that I can fix this in 90 seconds. And I don't want to waste three hours, so I'm going to ask God to give me the wisdom right now. This desperate, unclean woman heard about Jesus. She comes to Jesus. 
And she reaches out and she touches him. And verse 28 tells us exactly why. Here's what she thought. She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And so she touches Jesus and verse 29 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. It's incredible what she had been told about Jesus happened for her exactly like she thought. It was a miracle. And this miracle happens in the midst of this crowd of people. And yet only her and Jesus know that the miracle has taken place. And this leads to the curious interaction between Jesus and the woman after he heals her. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Doesn't it sort of seem like Jesus is calling this woman out? Like he heals her, and then all of a sudden, or she, she's healed as she touches him, and all of a sudden he's like, who touched me? And I'm sure everybody just kind of freaked out for him, like, whoa, what just happened? He says, who touched me? The disciples are like, everybody's touching you, Jesus. What's going on? But Jesus knows that power has gone out from him. He knows that somebody has touched him and received healing. And so he's, he's questioning, who has touched me? Why does he ask this question? The answer is in verse 34. Jesus in verse 34, after this woman who's obviously very afraid because she's an unclean woman, she couldn't be there. She's afraid to come out and tell everybody what she has done. And in verse 34, he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I love this. Jesus was not calling this woman out to embarrass her. He was calling this woman out to reestablish her. Remember, nobody else knows she's been healed, just Jesus and her. And this woman has been an outcast for 12 years in this community. She's probably come to Jesus with her head covered, not letting anybody even know her identity because she's not allowed to be there. And Jesus is not going to just let her walk away physically healed. He's going to restore everything to this woman. He calls her daughter. This is a precious daughter of God. And so he publicly in front of all of the community wants to affirm that this woman has been completely healed and therefore needs to be welcomed back to the community. No longer being looked down on, no longer being left out. She's going to be fully embraced once again. It's amazing. And what's really significant about this is when this woman touched Jesus, we already read Leviticus 15. What should have happened to Jesus when this woman touched him? Anybody? You can just throw it out there. What should have happened to Jesus? He should have been made what? Unclean. Later, he's going to touch a dead corpse, the little girl. He should have become what? Unclean. That's what the law said. However, instead of her uncleanness transferring to Jesus, his cleanness transfers to her. In an instant, in a single moment of contact, all of her ceremonial uncleanness has been reversed and she is now healed and embraced in the community once more. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's becoming very clear that Jesus 
is God's agent and God is working in him in powerful and unusual ways. And this woman's cleansing is a great picture of the even greater healing that Jesus brought to her that day and the greater healing he brings to every one of us who come to him by faith. Because don't the scriptures teach us that because of our sin, we've been made unclean. Because of our sin, we're unfit to be in God's presence. And yet, rather than our sin contaminating Jesus when it comes to him, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us his righteousness comes to us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's amazing. So Jesus confirms in the presence of all, this woman has been healed. Now we're going we're to speed through the final moment in this text here because the text itself becomes very rapid. Before there's even time to celebrate that this woman has been healed, a messenger arrives in the crowd and makes a terrible announcement. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And like a sword through his chest, those words would have pierced the heart of Jairus. It's too late. She's actually died. There's nothing more that can be done for her. Just why even ask Jesus to continue coming to your house? It's, it's a funeral now. It's not a hospital anymore. And you can imagine that Jairus, if he even had a minute to think about it, could have he could have really descended into frustration and anger. He could have looked maybe at the woman and said, hey, I got to him first. Or looked at Jesus and said, why did you stop for her? I was the one who came to you first and you promised to come to my house. Jesus, what happened? Why would you turn to her? But Jesus, of course, is big enough to handle all of our problems simultaneously. He looks directly at Jairus when he overhears the nature of the conversation. He just says to this man in verse 36, do not fear only believe. Jesus, he's a rock. He's never shaken. No news surprises him. Jairus, you can lean on me. Everything is going to be okay. He gives him words of confidence and he comes to the house with Jairus, with Jairus's wife, with a couple of disciples and everybody is there. There's professional mourners there. And Jesus says to them in verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. Now the child, of course, is dead. And that's why they all laugh at him. They know the child is dead. But see, Jesus is doing something significant here. Jesus knows that for him, death is nothing more than sleep. In fact, the New Testament refers to believers who have died by saying they've just fallen asleep. Because like this young girl, at the voice of Jesus, every true believer will be raised back to life. The scriptures say that at the resurrection, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Our bodies, which are laid physically to rest here on earth, will be raised and glorified and we will inhabit them forever as we live with Christ. And that's what's happening. This is a picture of that 2,000 years ago. So friends, in this passage we see that Jesus actually has power and authority over disease and even over death. And that's because he would defeat sin at the cross, which is the root cause of both. Not only disease and death, but in the prior two stories of Mark, you can add to that list power over nature when he calmed the sea, power over demons when he cast out the demons, 
Clearly, this Jesus is no ordinary man. And that's because he's the God-man. And this is becoming more and more undeniable as Mark's gospel progresses. And as the God-man, Jesus stepped into our hell, a world full of sin and death and disease and suffering and war and violence and abuse and everything else that's wrong. He stepped into all of that to bring us into his heaven. And Jesus' earthly ministry 2,000 years ago is a foretaste of the healing and the redemption and the restoration that he will usher in in his eternal kingdom. Now, God had allowed both of these characters to get to this place of absolute desperation to develop dependence, as I've been saying. But I want to say it one other way. He did this to allow their faith to be drawn out. It was faith that caused this woman to touch the end of Jesus' garment. It was faith that caused Jairus to ask Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. And this is what God is after. He wants faith in the lives of his children. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. God is seeking to draw out your faith and mine. And he did draw out their faith. And faith is the instrument that opens up the pathway of God's redemptive power in our lives. God has given us no other such avenue. And so God is interested in cultivating and drawing out our faith. Now in closing, I want to just say one last thing. And some of you are already thinking about this. Both of the characters in Mark chapter 5 got to experience a very happy ending to their problem. She gets a healing, he gets his daughter back. But every single one of us in this room know that sometimes the flow of blood doesn't stop. Sometimes the child dies. And so the question becomes, what then? What do we do then? And the answer is, to the what then question is this. Friends, this is why we need the whole gospel. Here's what I mean. Friends, the good news of the gospel ends with the restoration of all things in Christ. And so, in all actuality, listen to me very carefully, the flow of blood does cease. And the dead do rise. Without exception. For every single person who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, the flow of blood always ceases and death is always undone because Jesus will make all things new. And so when we have the whole gospel and we have a big gospel like that, it gives us the resources that we need, whether Jesus gives you the healing now or diverts the death now, it gives us the resources to say, under any and every circumstance of our lives, it is well with my soul. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much for your heart for your people. God, we read this text and I'm sure for all of us, our hearts empathize as we read this text with this woman who has suffered so much for so long. 
And our hearts empathize with this man, Jairus, who like any loving father has dreams and visions and plans for his young daughter's future. And all of that is in jeopardy. But Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, as we read this text, our hearts are also filled with great, great hope. Because this text reminds us, God, of your love, of your goodness, of your power, and of your commitment to the well-being of your people. And so God, this morning we pray that whether right now we are in a time of desperation in our lives or whether things are going really well, that God, you would increase our faith, that you would help us to hold on to Jesus, the only one who can help us. And God, we pray that you would carry us through this week. We pray you'd carry us through this month. We pray that you would carry us through the rest of our earthly existence until you call every single one of us into glory in your presence. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.